thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would fill us, God, that that there would be a freshness and newness to this text. Um, When we talk about the end of your life and the the events leading up, uh, most most people in the church have heard these stories so many times. And Lord, we know that familiarity can sometimes breed contempt. And I pray that that wouldn't be the case in this setting. Uh, Lord, that you would teach us something new or, or even remind us of something that, that we need to know. Uh, and maybe it's something we know, but, that we just, but we just aren't doing it, uh, God. So I, I pray that you would use this time in your word uh, for your glory, that you would grow us, change, change us, shape us um, into, into the image uh, of your son, that we would see just how amazing uh, he was and the character that he portrayed and um, how, how we're very different, but we're called to be the same. So, uh, Lord, we ask that you would bless this time in your name. Amen. All right. So Matthew chapter 26, uh, we see um, several things happen. The last couple teachings, uh, we talked about how Jesus instituted communion despite the disloyalty uh, that the disciples were going to commit against him. Uh, in other words, you remember Jesus knowing all things, knowing everything that was going to happen in the end, knowing that Judas was going to betray him, knowing that the disciples were going to abandon him. In the midst of that knowledge, he established communion. He established literally relationship with the disciples. And what that tells us is that despite the fact that he knows we're going to stumble, he wants relationship with us. He desperately wants relationship with us. And he shows that as he institutes communion at the Last Supper, which was the Seder dinner celebrating Passover. Now, that night we see uh, what we talked about last week, uh, he brings the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane and he asks them to pray, watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray. And what do they do? They sleep, right? They're disengaged spiritually. We see the complacency of the disciples in the moment, uh, probably the greatest moment, the most important moment at the, uh, of their lives leading up to that point where they were supposed to be spiritual. They disengaged spiritually while the Lord was engaged spiritually. He was focused on the cross he knew what had to happen and he was determined to pray passionately to his father jesus tried to set the disciples up for success but they were too tired they didn't listen and because of that they fell into temptation just as he warned them they ended up fleeing from the lord now in this text We'll be in Matthew chapter 26, uh, verses 57 to 75. We'll, we'll close out the, the chapter. Um, what Matthew does, and many of the gospel writers, what they do is, especially in these last days, they contrast Jesus to every other man, okay? And, and it's easy for us to get in the mentality, because we know we're supposed to imitate Christ, uh, that we try to relate more to Christ, which we're supposed to try to relate to him. But really what the Bible's trying to tell us is that we're like the other people. <laughs> we're not like Jesus. We're like the other characters in the Bible. We're supposed to be like Jesus, but we're not. Okay, so we're going to see in this text specifically, the religious leaders come together by the order of Caiaphas. And we're going to see this character quality of pride in man throughout the text. So we're going to compare the pride of man and the humility of Christ. Okay. The title of this teaching is His Humility and Our Pride. His Humility and Our Pride. 
Somebody's probably like, are you calling me prideful? If that's your response, then yes. Um, <laughs> the, the truth of the matter is, uh, even if we're considered meek or humble people, we all have an element of pride. How do I know that? Because it says pride is the root of all evil. If we didn't have any pride, we would never sin. And I know there are no sinless people in this church. That's why you're here. Uh, so what we're going to see in this text is the Lord's humility. And it's, and it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, specifically, we'll focus on one of the trials that he walked through and how he responds or doesn't respond for the most part. And then we're going to look at primarily Peter and his pride and how Peter's pride ultimately led to his denial. So the main thing that we're going to focus on in this text is the difference between Jesus and Peter, okay, and how they respond to somewhat similar circumstances. You'll understand as we dive in. So let's do that. Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Now, we know this wasn't the first trial that Jesus uh, walked into or was led into. Um, this is the first one that Matthew mentions because it's a significant one. But we know from John chapter 18 uh, that first they led him to Annas' house, who was the high priest before Caiaphas. He's often referred to as the high priest. Uh, we talked about this before. They took Annas out of power and the Romans put Caiaphas in power because he was like their little puppet. Okay, so they brought him to Annas. Annas could find no fault in him. He, uh, it didn't really work out. Out there with the trial, so they sent them back to Caiaphas. Now, Caiaphas is holding a trial at nighttime, which is illegal, okay? It was illegal in the Jewish culture to have trials in the middle of the night, which we'll talk more about later because there's other things that are illegal in this trial, specifically with Jesus. Matthew is focusing on this trial because it's, it's a significant one. What's asked, uh, what Caiaphas asked Jesus and how he responds. We'll get into that later. This is the reason that they put him to death. That's why Matthew is emphasizing this specific trial. But we see, uh, in, in Caiaphas, these certain leadership qualities, negative leadership qualities, uh, we see the pride, we see the deceit, we see the manipulation, we see that he's doing things in darkness, we see that he's power hungry. This is one of the reasons that he's doing all this because the Lord has threatened his authority as the high priest. He's put his authority into question. And we look at Jesus and he's the polar opposite. He's not hungry for power. He knows he has all power. He's hungry for truth, not deceit, not manipulation. He's not prideful. He's, he's humble. Okay. So we go on Matthew chapter 26, verse 58, but Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest courtyard. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Okay. So Peter, he wants to see what's going to happen. He's following him at a distance. Now, Likely, the main reason why Peter is following Jesus is probably because he wants to prove Jesus wrong, that he's not going to deny him. You remember, he said, I will go to prison for you. I will die for you. So Peter, he's following Jesus because he wants to see what happens. And he he wants to prove that, that he's a true follower of Jesus. But the text tells us 
that he's following Jesus at a distance. See, this distance between Peter and Jesus is going to continue to grow. And it's going to continue to grow to ultimately to the point where Peter denies Jesus. He's not following Jesus closely. He's following him at a distance, which is so applicable to our lives as believers. Sometimes we can follow Jesus at a distance. What do I mean? I want to see what he's going to do. I want to hear what he's going to say. I'm going to follow him at a distance. I'm going to keep my distance because I want to see if I agree with the direction that he's leading me. And then when I'm sure I agree with what he's doing, then I'll follow him more closely. But we can put this distance between us and the Lord and it really comes down to a lack of trust. He doesn't call us to follow him at a distance. He calls us to follow him closely, to follow him intimately. Because this is the reality. We fall into a place where we're following the Lord at a distance. That distance is going to grow and grow and grow and grow till we get to a point where we realize, I'm not even following Jesus anymore. I'm not even following him anymore. In fact, I'm denying him on some level, which we'll get into shortly. The point is, the Lord has not called us to follow him at a distance. He's called us to follow him closely. Uh, I'd love to talk to you after after service. If you want to bring up some questions, I, I, I'd love to, to to help and kind of figure out um, some of that. Uh, so the point is this distance, it continues to increase and it comes with actually a lack of trust. But the Lord calls us to follow him closely, to follow him intimately. In fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That diligence looks like close proximity at this point in Peter's walk. He already ran and now he's trying to follow closely. He's trying to make up for fleeing but he hasn't been diligently seeking. Had he been diligently seeking, he would have listened to the things that God had already asked him to do, like watch and pray. goes on, Matthew chapter 26, verse 59. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward. And said, this fellow, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Now, as I mentioned previously, uh, according to Jewish law, you weren't allowed to have a trial at nighttime. This is why we're going to see another trial take place the next day. You couldn't start a trial at nighttime. It had to, had to start when the sun came up and it had to end when the sun went down. It's just a picture of how the, the truth is revealed in the light. If you're trying to keep these things in darkness, what you're trying to do is hide the truth. That's exactly what Caiaphas was doing. There are also other reasons why this trial was illegal. You weren't allowed to have cases, try cases on Passover. And we know this is Passover. You remember they started the dinner after the sun went down. A Jewish day starts when the sun goes down and then uh, the next day before it goes down again. So this is the Passover and they're having a trial on the Passover, which is also illegal as well. If you had a guilty verdict, verdict, especially when it came to, to capital punishment, you had to wait till the next day. 
to uh, inflict that punishment. Why? Because they had to leave room for mercy. What if they made a mistake? What if God wanted them to have mercy on this individual and he, they didn't want, uh, he didn't want them uh, to want you to, to hold this person according to the law? Because we see a lot of capital punishment um, inflicted throughout the Levitical law. As well, we see that the people that are brought against Jesus are false witnesses. It tells us that a couple times. The punishment for being a false witness was capital punishment. So, so even the people that are coming against Jesus, that are making false accusations against Jesus, are in sin, and they're actually the ones that are guilty and deserving of death. Now it says... They found two false witnesses that came forward, verse 61, and one of them said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. This is what he's saying Jesus said. Jesus did say this, and he said this back in John chapter 2, in the beginning of his ministry, if you remember, the Lord was baptized, he went to the temple, he literally cleaned house, if you will, uh, he cleansed the temple twice in scripture, one in the beginning of his ministry, one in the last week of his ministry, but in John chapter 2, verse 19, we see this statement of Jesus Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. He was talking about his body and and, and that was clear to John. I don't know how clear it was to everyone else uh, that was in the room at that time period. But the point is, even the false accusation that was brought against Jesus was through the form of a false interpretation. It was a false interpretation. Jesus wasn't saying, I'm going to destroy the temple. He did say in Matthew uh, 24 that the temple will be destroyed, but he didn't say he was going to do it. We see through history, it was actually the Romans that destroyed the temple. Regardless, this is... Not enough to build the case against Jesus. Okay, This isn't enough. So Caiaphas is going to take it to the next level. Look at what happens. Verse 62. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? So the high priest is like, This is not going great. Okay, We need something else. We need to build a better case against Jesus if we're going to put him to death. So then he asks them this question. Look at verse 63. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So this whole trial is going on, and then in the beginning, Jesus is saying nothing. It says he kept silent. He's not trying to prove the truth because he is the truth. He stands firm in the truth. He doesn't have to prove them wrong and himself right. He knows he's right. He's confident in the truth. But there's this character quality of Jesus, this humility, which is leading to his silence. It's point number one. Humility knows when to be silent. Humility knows when to be silent. As if humility was a person. That's how that point is phrased. But this was, yes, absolutely, because Christ was humble. But this was also to fulfill Scripture. If you look at Isaiah chapter 53, 
all about the suffering servant that would come. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He wasn't trying to defend himself. He was just letting things play out. This was to fulfill scripture and also because, like I mentioned, he's a very humble man. But this was also extremely wise. And the Bible tells us in Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 10, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, it says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. He who restrains his lips is wise. It doesn't mean that uh, wise people never communicate, but wise people have to use less words. They don't have to use so many words. They know when to be silent and know when to speak. This is the character quality of Jesus. Do you know when to be silent? Do you know when to zip it? I wish I knew more than I do. But sometimes we say things that we're like, oh, it would have been better had I not said anything. Especially, think about Jesus' circumstances. He's being tried. He's being falsely accused. Now, think about it. If I falsely accused you of something, you probably wouldn't be silent, right? You would probably speak up and defend yourself. Why would you say that? How could you say that? What's your evidence of this? Yada, yada, yada. And we would get all riled up and angry and we try to defend ourselves. Not Jesus. Why? Because he knows the truth. Because he is the truth. He stands firm in the truth. He doesn't have to defend himself. They'll find the truth. If they want to know the truth, if they want to know the truth, they'll seek it and they'll find it. Sadly, but truly, we know it'll be too late before that ever happens. But the Lord, he's silent because he's confident in the truth. He doesn't have to plead his case. And it goes on to say, break this down a little bit, he puts him under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Caiaphas wasn't asking him this question because he wanted to know the answer. Okay. He, he didn't want to know the truth of this question. He was asking him this question specifically so he could bring about accusation against Jesus. He wanted Jesus to answer this question pretty much the way that he did. I don't think he expected Jesus to answer it how he did, which we'll get into in a moment. But the point of this question was to trap Jesus as they tried to do so many times before. Jesus knows this. He knows all things, but he's going to answer this question anyways. Why? Because the question Caiaphas just asked him is the most important question any human being can ever ask. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Are you the Christ, the son of the living God? Everything he says is contingent upon who he is. If he was just a man that had good moral character and he was just a gifted teacher, then his words are, are lies because he claims to be God. So he answers Caiaphas and the other people in the room because he knows how important this question is. He wants them to know the truth about his identity. So he answers it in a really creative way. Verse 64, it is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Before we break that down, Jesus, he knew when to be silent. He also knew when to speak, okay? He wasn't silent the whole trial. There was a point where he opened his mouth, and we'll see some things that he says to Pilate as well. Wisdom knows when to be silent 
and knows when to speak up. And this is only done, the only way we're able to discern which is which when we speak and when we're supposed to be quiet is by the power of the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that dominated Jesus, fully God, fully man. And it's the Spirit of God that can dominate us. He can lead us when to speak. He can lead us when to be silent. In the trial, we see more silence than speaking. Jesus... He wasn't all about just making his opinion known, okay? Especially in his trial. Yes, he taught and taught and he communicated a lot. But he knew when to speak. He knew when to be silent. So I have this thing with Facebook, okay? I have this thing. um, I don't really put a lot of stuff on Facebook, okay? I might post a video about God here and there or or whatever, but, but I don't typically like put a bunch of like my opinion about politics and things that are going on and, 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 and my thoughts or whatever the case may be. And it's not because I don't think about this stuff. It's not that. Uh, I think about these things, but I think it comes down to this. Knowing when to speak and knowing when to be silent. In fact, there was a situation that happened just a couple weeks ago. And my friend, he, uh, that I grew up with, he's secular, he's not a believer. Uh, he's a professor at some, like, uh, photography school in LA. Um, but smart guy. Uh, but he starts this, this thing, this rant about blaming, um, uh, blaming the baby boomers for the economy right now, okay? So he goes into this whole thing, and, and the dialogue just gets crazy. I had to stop reading it because it was riling me up. Um, and, and, you know, everybody wants to point the finger and blame. This is why we are, why we are, where we are, and this is what's wrong with our society, and all these different things. And I wanted to respond, and I pray. Wisdom silent sometimes. Bible says, don't be wise in your own opinion. Okay, yes, we have the freedom of speech, but wisdom is silent often. And, and I'm not saying don't speak up for what you believe in. I'm just saying know when to speak up for what you believe in. And know when to be silent about it. Jesus, he knew when to be silent. He knew the truth was going to prove itself right eventually. He didn't have to fight his own battle. He just let things play themselves out. He wasn't trying to control the situation because ultimately he was in control of the situation. But we can learn from him that by the power of the Spirit, we can know when to speak up and we can know when to zip our lips, I think, honestly, when we're talking about Facebook, I think there should be a lot more prayer that gets <laughs> gets prayed before we post comments on Facebook. In all sincerity, there's, you know, once it's there, it's there. Yeah, you can delete it or edit it or whatever the case may be. But sometimes it's just like, this is my opinion. I want everybody to know my thoughts and what I think. It's like, that's not, that's not how we see Jesus do here. <clears throat> So this passage, what he says here, is phenomenal. It is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay, In Matthew's account, um, he uses two of the scriptures that Jesus is quoting here. In Mark's account, he also says, I am, from Exodus chapter 3. He's saying, I am who I am. I, I, I am Yahweh, in other words. But in Matthew's account, he leaves that part out and he focuses on these other two statements. Hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power. Okay, this was from Psalm 110. From Psalm 110, verse 1. This is what Jesus is claiming. He's claiming to be the fulfillment of this text. He's claiming this text is talking about him. And this isn't the first time he did this. He, he actually did this before, if you remember, uh, when, they, when, when he asked them, 
the, the religious leaders, uh, who is the son of David? Is he just the son of David or is he something more? He was leading them to this scripture and he used this scripture to say the son of David, the Messiah, is more than just a person from the lineage of David. He's the son of God. Okay, And he uses this exact scripture to point to that. It says in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, literally in the Hebrew, Adonai, or sorry, Yahweh said to Adonai. Those are two words for God. God said to God. How does that make sense? We know through the New Testament, because we worship a triune God. So God the Father said to God the Son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is what he's quoting. See? Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power. Okay, the Lord said to my Lord. He's claiming to be the other Lord. He's literally claiming to be God. This also spoke of the fact that Jesus had all authority to judge man. He has all authority to judge man. This is a reference to the authority of judgment. Sitting at the right hand. Also a position of prominence. So basically what Jesus is telling them, you guys are judging me now, but I'm going to judge you later, okay? This is who I am. I have ultimate judgment. You better make sure you're right on this judgment because I'm going to be the one that judges all man, all creation in the end. Then he also uses a verse, a part of one, from Daniel chapter 7. Look what he says here. You'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay. Daniel chapter seven. Daniel chapter seven. We see this prophecy that was given to Daniel about the Christ. And it says in verse 13, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of this, okay? God has given me all authority, not just to judge. I'm going to rule and reign over the entire earth, including you, okay? So he's making the claim that he is the one that Daniel spoke of that's going to be coming in the clouds of heaven. He's claiming to be God. If anyone tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God, Jesus claimed to be God so many times. And ultimately, Jesus claiming to be God was why he was killed. Look at verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he is deserving of death. Jesus didn't die because he threatened the authority of the religious leaders. He, he didn't die because he started a revolution. He didn't die because he had a great following. He died because he claimed to be God. That's why he died. That is the very reason that it's blasphemy. That's why he was killed. Now, ultimately, we know it was God's plan, redemption on the cross, the whole deal. But as far as man's responsibility, they killed him because he claimed to be God. They considered that blasphemy. So if someone ever says to you, Jesus never claimed to be God, just ask them, why did he die then? Just ask him and bring him there. Well, it says here, there's blasphemy because he claimed to be God. That's really what the text is telling us. So the high priest tore his clothes. That's why he's, he's acting out. 
uh, in such anger, such rage. This guy claimed to be God. So they, they, the people agree in verse 66, he's deserving of death. That was the punishment for blasphemy. And it's crazy when you think about the depravity of man, which we'll get into in the next couple weeks. Like, everyone says, like, unbelievers, they'll say, man, if God came down and, like, met me in my room or whatever, and I pray, and he met me where I was at, and he told me he was God, then I would believe. It's not true at all. God came down, he led, led a sin, sinless life. Uh, they even were uh, had trouble making any accusations against them. They were trying to get people to make false testimonies against them. That's the only way they could build a case against him. He comes, he lives a sinless life. He confirms his deity by doing a bunch of miracles. He claims to be God time and time again. And at the very end, once again, he says, yes, I'm him. I'm God. And they still kill him. It's just the depravity. Why? Because men don't want God. With their sinful nature. They want to be their own gods. That was the case for Caiaphas and the religious leaders. It takes the power of the Spirit for us to realize that he's God, but not just realize that he's God, submit to him as Lord. They didn't want it. Matthew chapter 26, verse 67. <clears throat> then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Jesus didn't just talk about humility. He lived it. And he suffered brutally because of the humility that he responded to them with. This is point number two. Humility invites brutality. Humility invites brutality. Jesus didn't have to take that. He could have done anything. He could have called the legions of angels that he spoke of in the last section of Scripture. He didn't take that beating, or he didn't have to take that beating. But he took it, yes, for love, but also because he's humble. See, humility is something that Jesus both taught and lived out. If you look back at Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, so many things that we learn in the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus do uh, later on in his life. In Matthew chapter 5, Verse 39, it says, But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Famous expression, turn the other cheek. Jesus didn't just talk about it, he did it. And I've heard people say this, I don't know if you have. I've heard people say, well, Jesus just says to turn the other cheek once. He doesn't say do it twice. So if someone hits you twice, then you're not supposed to. No, that's not what he did, though. (laughs) The implication is, yes, continue to turn the other cheek. Humility invites brutality. He took a beating and he did it willingly. Now, personally, confession, I don't know what I would do. Okay? Someone spit in my face and started punching me in the face. I know it would take the power of the Holy Spirit to restrain me. Okay, now, now I don't know what would happen. Hopefully, the best the best thing would happen. The Lord would do just that. He would restrain me, uh, I, spitting in my face, punching me. I don't. I just don't know. But I actually have a friend. Uh, some of you guys know him, Dirk. Um, he was here a couple weeks ago for, for, for about a week. A uh, guy, good friend that I've done ministry with for a long time. Uh, he used to lead this ministry um, uh, for the homeless in downtown Fort Lauderdale called uh, The Refuge. And uh, this one time there was this guy that was like kind of isolated. He was sitting on a bench and Dirk was like, uh, he walked up to him. He's like, hey man, you all right? Can I pray for you? The dude just jacked him right in the eye. 
swollen, his eye was swollen and everything. He punched him hard. And, and, and Dirk is a big guy. He looks like a Viking, okay? He's big and jacked. You would look at him, not someone you want to punch in the face, okay? But he's like a, a teddy bear. He looks like a Viking, but he acts like a teddy bear. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry. He apologizes to the guy and, and, and then he, he tries to minister to him. Obviously, that was a closed door at that point. Uh, but the point is that the power of the spirit really can give us the strength to endure that brutality. OK, we never know what we'd actually do, but we know what the Bible teaches and we know what the Bible teaches. God will give us the power to walk in what it teaches. We see this through the person of Christ. He's taking this brutal beating and we can expect this as well. Maybe not physical abuse or maybe not physical persecution. But if we are humble people, we can expect people to take advantage of it. If we walk in humility, we can expect people to walk all over us. And it actually says this in scripture. In other words, in Isaiah chapter 51, in Isaiah chapter 51, Verse 23, it says, But I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you, who have said to you, Lie down, that we may walk over you. And you have laid your body like the ground as the street for those who walk over. Okay. In context, uh, this was referring to uh, the Babylonians that, that would come and literally walk all over Israel, trample them. And God, really, he raised up the Babylonians uh, and, and, and for one reason, to humble the Israelites. We can expect this as God, God's people. He will often raise people up to humble us. He, he will use people to walk all over us which is a sad thing, but it's true because we see it in the life of Christ. We also see it in other scriptures. If we're not walking in humility, we can expect God to raise someone up to walk all over us, okay? Uh, there's, there's a chance that we can avoid it if we choose humility, which we'll get into later, but Jesus, they absolutely walked all over him. They saw his humility as weakness, and that's what the world will do. The world is is ridden with pride because man in our sinful nature we're ridden with pride and it's uh you know I'll do whatever I need to do dog eat dog make it to the top it's about power prestige and prominence and all these different things it's all rooted in pride why because the God of this world he's full of pride and it's the complete opposite of what we see with Jesus Christ. He takes the beating. He takes it willingly. He embraces it. We can expect people to take advantage of us. As sad as that is, it's true. And you see it all the time in the church. People will take advantage because they see humility as weakness. But his humility was actually strength. What the world sees as weakness, the Lord sees as strength. goes on. Matthew chapter 26, verse 69. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. So now we see Peter in his denial. He denies Jesus to a little girl, okay? And when you look back, it was ultimately Peter's pride that led to his denial. Remember, Jesus confronted him. Satan's asking to sift you like wheat. In other words, you're prideful, Peter, and you need to humble yourself or you're going to get wrecked. Okay, just humble yourself. He wouldn't listen. No, Lord, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to go to prison for you. Jesus is like, all right, 
Well, there it goes. You you won't respond in humility, so I'm going to give you over to your pride. And this pride was the beginning stages that led to his denial. This is point number three. Pride leads to denial. Pride leads to denial. The very thing that Peter said he would never do, he did. Why? Because his confidence was misplaced. His confidence was his, in his ability to endure through not denying Jesus Christ. His confidence wasn't rooted in the word of God. He wasn't looking at Jesus' words and saying, responding in humility, is that really what's going to happen? Lord, I repent. What can I do to make sure this doesn't happen? He didn't do that. He said, basically, in other words, words, Lord, you're wrong. You're wrong and I'm not going to deny you. He denied the word because he was more confident in himself than he was in the word. And when we're more confident in ourselves than we are in the word, it's going to lead us to deny the word. That's exactly what Peter did because of his pride. He ultimately denied the word Jesus Christ and denied the words of Jesus Christ. Now, when you look at, and we'll continue to look at this, um, but but the pressure that surrounded Jesus versus the pre- versus the pressure that surrounded Peter, <laughs> Jesus is brought before a mob that's literally beating him up. Uh, the Sanhedrin's there, the uh, the the, um, the the religious leaders of the day, and we see how Jesus responds. Peter, on the other hand, is encountered by a little girl, and he denies the truth. The pressure around Peter broke him he, he couldn't handle this pressure from this little girl it's like what like jesus wasn't broken by the pressure from the angry mom but but peter the pressure of this girl which is a picture of the pressure of the world around us can lead us to this place of denial now there's probably several reasons why peter denied the lord um, first of all he may have thought, maybe Jesus isn't who I thought he was. Maybe he wasn't the real deal, even though it was Peter who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Maybe he's questioning it. Maybe he's just embarrassed. It's like, you're the guy that's following the guy that's getting beat up. What's that say about you? Maybe he's just embarrassed because he didn't think something like this would happen to him. But there's likely doubt in Peter's mind in this moment. He's unsure right now. Is Jesus really who he said he was? And his pride, once again, led to that doubt, which led to that denial. See, it was the pressure around him that played a part in it. And the world will often put pressure around us to lead us to deny the truth, to deny God's word. There's so many different forms of of pressure, but so many people, it runs rampant more and more today. They'll say science proves that that God doesn't exist. That's totally the opposite of the facts. Uh, Science proves this and science proves that. and, And God's word isn't true. There's so many contradictions. Evolution is the way. God did not create man. He did not create this world. And the world around us will put so much pressure on us to lead us to this place of embarrassment oh really you believe that like you're a christian and this embarrassment it leads to this place of doubt like wait maybe maybe i don't know like maybe i don't believe that or maybe i don't believe this they're making me question what i believe and these little bits of pressure maybe it's from a little girl maybe it's from a friend 
can lead us to this place of denial. But see if Peter from the get-go would have responded in humility when Jesus says, this is what Satan's asking to sift you like wheat, Peter. That was like his last chance to humble himself and he didn't choose to humble himself. If you would have responded to the Lord and said, as I mentioned, what can I do to make sure this doesn't happen, God? Teach me what to do. I want to repent of it. If that's what you're saying what's go- is going to happen, I trust your word. I'm confident in your word, but how can I avoid this? If he would have been prayed up in the garden instead of sleeping, if he would have been listening to the things that the Lord told him to listen to and told him to do, we might be reading a different story. Now we can look at Peter in this denial and look down on him like, really, Peter? Like you were a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple, and you denied Jesus? I'd never deny Jesus. Be careful. Be careful. And, and, and you know, in Peter's circumstance, we don't know actually what we would do. We could only hope for the best. But the truth is, we deny the Lord on a small level probably more often than we'd like to admit. What do I mean? If you bear the name Christian, what does that mean? Little Christ, right? It means little Christ. It means you're a little, you're a little Jesus. That's what you're supposed to be. That's what Christian actually means. And to bear his name is to bear his character, okay? In Exodus chapter 34, when the Lord reveals his name to Moses, he reveals his character, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding and goodness and truth-keeping mercy for thousands. Why? Because his name is his character, okay? And that's why God gives us so many different names to reveal different character qualities about him. So when we bear the name Christian and we don't bear his character, we're denying his name. We're denying his name. We're bearing a name that doesn't line up with who he is. So ultimately, we are denying his name. Now, this isn't just with, with words. This is more often in action. Yes, Peter might have denied the Lord's name in word, but we can deny the Lord's name in action. Maybe you got a cross necklace, which isn't bad. But maybe, maybe your coworkers know you bear the name Christian. But are you bearing the character of a Christian? Are you bearing the character of Christ? Is there anything that comes up in your life that the world would look at and say, I don't know if he's a follower. I don't know if she's a follower of Jesus Christ. Yeah, they call themselves a Christian, but I'm not sure about that. If anyone has room for for question in our lives, then in that specific circumstance, we're denying his name on some level, in some form or nature. So before we get on Peter about his denial, I think there's a lot of room for compassion think we can relate to Peter more often than we realize. So he goes on, Matthew chapter 26, verse 71. And when he, when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with the oath, with an oath, I do not know the man. So another girl, another denial. But this time Peter adds an oath. He's like, I got to add something to my words so that they'll believe me. But what does Jesus say about oaths? In Matthew chapter 5, in Matthew chapter 5, again in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 33, Jesus says, Again, you heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not bear false witness, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. 
But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Jesus is saying, in other words, if you have to add oaths to your words, then it just proves you're a liar, okay? Either you're lying right then with the oath, or you are lying every other time that you didn't make the oath, okay? So when we add these words like, I swear, I promise, the truth, that's a red flag. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you have to add to your word, it means at some point you've been lying about something. If you can just be firm on your word and be true to your word and say, yes means yes and no be no, no means no, then there doesn't give anyone any reason. There's not any reason for anyone to question your word. I'll give you an example. So when we were kids, uh, my dad used to, used to make us uh, say, if, if it was like something that was questionable and he wanted to know the truth, he would say, you have to say truth, okay? You have to say truth, like this is the truth, okay? Why did he have to implement that? Because we were liars and we would lie to him. So he says, you have to add this word truth so that I know that you're telling the truth. And then we figured out when we add the word truth, he believes it's true, even though it may not be. So that didn't work, and he just realized we lied about everything. So the oath thing, it didn't work. But that's what the Lord's getting at. You shouldn't have to add an oath to what you're saying. Someone has to add an oath or say, I swear. And I know it's cultural, but we got to think about it. And I do it sometimes by mistake. As much as I know this, if we have to add extra words to our words, then that's a red flag. Either you're lying right then, or you're lying all the other times that you don't add the oath to it. Peter, adding an oath. Because he's lying. (laughs) That's why he's adding the oath. Goes on. Matthew chapter 26, verse 73. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. He begins cursing. He begins swearing. He went from the oath and now he's cursing and swearing so that they think, that ain't a follower of Jesus. Listen to his mouth, right? Because we don't curse or swear, right, Christians? No, of course not. I would never expect that. So he's he's cursing and swearing so that they know that he is not one of them. He's not a follower of Jesus Christ. He does not know the man. Now, when you look at how Jesus responds Versus how Peter responds. It's completely opposite. Jesus. He is the truth. He knows the truth. He stands firm in the truth. And he has to say next to nothing. He's silent. He's not trying to defend himself. He's like, whatever. The truth is going to play itself out eventually. He's not fighting this battle. He's not saying, no, you're falsely accusing me. He's not getting all hot and riled up. Just lets it play itself out. He's confident in the truth. Peter. He's moved. He starts getting angry. He starts getting, he starts getting passionate. He starts swearing. He starts cursing. No, what I'm telling you is true. Okay. Let's learn this. When people get all riled up about something, they're saying, claiming that they know, that's a red flag right there, okay? If you're confident in the truth, and I get it, especially if someone falsely accuses you, there's, you know, room there to get a little fired up. But when we look at the difference between Peter and Jesus, One's fired up, the other one's calm, the other one's peaceful. Why? Because they don't have to fight for the truth. They know what the truth is. This is the truth, take it or leave it. Peter, he's trying to communicate 
and passion for the people to believe his lies. Goes on. Matthew chapter 26, verse 75. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Sometimes we won't remember the truth until we catch ourselves in a lie. Or we're caught in a lie. Or we're living a lie. Sadly, but truly, sometimes it takes us crossing the boundary for us to realize, oh my gosh, I'm not living according to the word. Now that doesn't have to happen, but it happened for Peter. He lied, the rooster crowed, then he remembered the word. But this is also encouraging. No matter where we find ourselves in our walk, uh, maybe if we go through a season where we're not living right, we backslide, we, we fall into something we know we shouldn't, we can be confident that the word is going to meet us in our life. <laughs> He's going to meet us in our life. The truth is eventually going to meet us in our life. And he loves us enough to correct us. He reminded Peter of his word. So the rooster crows and then look what happens. It says he went out and wept bitterly. Immediate regret. This is the fourth and final point. Pride leads to regret. Pride leads to regret. He knows he messed up. He was convinced before that he was never going to mess up. He was strong to stand. But the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. See, his pride led to his fall and his fall led to his regret. He thought he had it. He thought he could handle it. He thought he was confident in his own ability and he faltered. He failed. And now he regrets it. And you know, if you would have just listened to Jesus, he probably never would have been in the situation. If you would have listened to the words and the warnings of Jesus Christ, again, we'd probably be reading something different here. But he didn't. Jesus tried to warn him time and time again about his pride, but he refused to humble himself. So the Lord had to take matters into his own hands and humble him. See, we can either choose to walk in humility or wait for the Lord to humble us. One way or the other, the the Lord is determined to produce humble people, his people, his children. He desires them to be humble. So we see the humility of Christ leading by example. He he doesn't try to plead his case. He, He doesn't try to battle against the false accusations. He's silent until he knows he has to speak. He speaks one word of clarity that's so powerful. And the high priest and the others there accuse him of blasphemy, which wasn't true because he actually was God. And we see the pride in the religious leaders, specifically Caiaphas, the manipulation, the deceit, the doing things in darkness, the hunger for power, just ridden with pride. And then lastly, we see the pride of Peter. I'll never do this thing. I'm going to stand strong for you. And then he fell. He fell into the very thing that the Lord warned him about. See, the Lord was determined to have Peter become a leader in the church, but he wasn't going to allow him to be a prideful leader. He was determined to make him a humble leader, which is true for each and every one of his children. He's determined, as I mentioned, for us to express humility. Why? Because he is humble. We bear his name Christian. It means we're supposed to bear his character. Humility is a tough one. 
but it's something that the Lord is determined to produce in us. We'll finish right here. Matthew chapter 23, just a few pages back. Verse 12. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Specifically, this text is directed towards the Pharisees. He's talking to disciples about the Pharisees. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. This was the opposite character quality of the religious leaders. They were full of pride, and Jesus says, that's not how my people are going to be. They are going to be humble people, and if they're not, I'm going to make sure they are. And that's really what he's saying. He will humble those who exalt themselves those who who get caught up with pride so we have once again a choice we can choose to imitate jesus and walk in humility or wait for him to humble us peter didn't choose to walk in humility that's why the lord humbled him but he humbled him because he loved him he humbled him because he wanted to use him in ministry he humbled him because he wanted to show them that pride isn't going to cut it pride isn't going to work pride is the way of the world but it's not the way of the word So we can choose, as Peter had the choice, to walk in humility or wait for him to humble us. I've prayed that God would humble me one time in my life. I'll never do it again. I prayed God would humble me, and seriously, I can't even share what happened. He humbled me, like ridiculously. From that point forward, my prayer has always been, give me opportunities to walk in humility, okay? (laughs) Help me. Give me the strength and the opportunities to choose humility. Now, if you're bold enough to ask God to humble you, praise God. But I assure you, if you're trying to learn humility, which we all should be, ask for opportunities to to choose to be humble and filter those opportunities through what you see in the person of Jesus Christ, how he responded. If we imitate him in humility, we're on the right track. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you are the perfect example and and you show us exactly what to do, the exact way to respond to situations. And you also show us what not to do. Lord, I pray um, that anyone and everyone here, uh, there's pride in their lives on any level, Lord, that you would would reveal it and, and show them what humility looks like. God, we, we want to be humble people because we, we want to be like you and you've called us to be like you. But we know we can't do that in our own strength. Lord, we, we need the power of your spirit to, to choose to walk uh, humbly before you. God, so, so help us do that. Give us the strength to do that. We want to be dependent on you, not confident in ourselves. In your name, amen.